Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 294 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we have a very special treat for you, a conversation with Conrad L. Osborne. He is an opera aficionado, as well as an opera lover. He is an author, a philosopher to some extent, I would say, a grand intellectual, and a very soulful artist. We're going to talk about his recently published book titled Opera as Opera, The State of the Art. And uh, we have a very compelling analysis of opera, its history, where it is in the present day and where it might go in the future. And that gets us into reflecting on humanity and society. It's, uh, It's really a wonderful conversation. I look forward to sharing it with you. We have an EW essay titled French Toast another finely crafted and beautifully read piece by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, titled Coal Town Cinema. We have a poem called A Note. And, of course, as is always the case, all of this will be infused and imbued with the wondrous energy of several great tunes. Let's get to it. And thanks so much for being here. Episode 294 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. I used to write in notebooks. I used to read maps. I used to send letters I used to take naps But everything changes And so did I It's not the same world I'm not the same guy I used to call the bank up For the temperature and time I listened to a dial tone I waited on the line now I got the answers I pull them from the sky It's not the same world I'm not the same guy Did you know There are pictures of you on my phone It's true Did you know There are reasons for these things I do I do have sweet dreams when I was poor I got a little dough now don't dream anymore I lay awake and worry wonder when I'm gonna die I'm never all alone got the reapers standing by 
French toast. Hello there. I have been thinking as of late on the prospect of achieving enlightenment. No wind nirvana. Though I must admit I do like a great gust of wind too. Shakes everything out of stagnation. Can one be enlightened without calm? Or is that too binary of a perspective? Is enlightenment achieved by being calm, despite the complex, dynamic, invigorating state of consciousness. I suppose one needs to have an accurate and clear understanding of what, indeed, enlightenment is, in essence. Is it the same as wisdom? Is it acceptance, flexibility, or perhaps more of a principled steadfastness? Though these words, as they spill out of this pen, seem steeped in the last several hundred years of Western civilization and the more ancient Eastern thought is where the substance of my queries lay, are the objective and subjective one and the same at Nirvana? Is one beyond these dualistic diatribes there? How is it that unconditional love transcends? My wonderfully kind wife has just opened the door to call me to breakfast. Nirvana, perhaps. She sneezes much like my mother. All is one, one is all, all for one, one for all. I am in awe. Sorry, 
Hello, Conrad L. Osborne. Is that you? Correct. Yes. Hi. Is this Lawrence? Yes, it is. From Troubadours Hi. and Rock on Tours. Nice to have you on the program. Very good. Well, thanks so much. Good to be here. Uh, before we get started, if you don't mind, I'd like to share a little background information for our listeners. Sure. Good. Conrad L. Osborne has a loyal following among serious devotees of opera. He started writing for Opera News as a young man and quickly demonstrated the extraordinary combination of technical knowledge and deep insight for which he has become known. His most recent book, published in July 2018, titled Opera as Opera, The State of the Art, has received much critical acclaim. 
Over the years, Mr. Osborne has also written for these periodicals, High Fidelity, The Financial Times, Opus, The New York Times, Metropolitan Opera Guides to Opera, and many others. He is also the author of a novel, O Paradiso. His current observations on today's opera scene can be found at his entertaining and highly informative blog, Osborne on Opera. We are very excited to have Conrad L. Osborne on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Once again, thank you, sir, for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. It's my great pleasure. And uh, let's get right into it. I want to start out with uh, asking you a bit about your background, your training, your singing, how you came into loving and being so interested in opera. Sure. Well, uh, as far as loving and being interested is concerned, that started very early. I grew up in a household where both my parents were teachers, uh, but my father was also a singer, a bass, and uh, so I grew up with his voice and with his record collection and uh, and was interested from early childhood. Um, so far as actual training is concerned in, in the professional sense, um, I didn't continue with any academic course beyond high school, so my training directly uh, was all private. Uh, I studied voice for, I guess it adds up to 18 or 19 years with uh, four different teachers. And uh, I studied acting um, operatically with Frank Corsaro, a famous director with the New York City Opera back in the 60s, and uh, also down at HB Studios, mostly with uh, Austin Pendleton. So all that was independent and private. Um, I also had no formal writing training. I mean, I never took writing courses or workshops or those things that lots of writers do. Uh, but I did have the benefit of a good background from my home and from my uh, my my very good high school. So uh, I guess I just went from there. Yes, I I, uh, I understand. I understand. Austin Pendleton was uh, someone who really appreciated the the book I mentioned earlier, and he he's been a guest on our program as well. What a great! Man. I know that he told he told me that he had uh, that he had been with the program. Yes. Yeah, he's he's something else. I love Austin. <laughs> Austin is one of the, one of the great individuals, and uh, uh, my wife and I both. My wife is an actress, and uh, we both trained with him, and have been in shows that he directed, and uh, we've uh, seen almost everything that he's been involved with for many many years. We, we feel he's a very close friend. Well, right now, let me ask just to give uh, a sense to our listeners. Uh, where are we talking uh, with you from? Where are you right now? In New York City, on the Upper West Side. So you were part of the scene. That's part, that's your that's your day to day. That's your neighborhood. That's where you you live and, and nurture your your sense of the arts. That's a wonderful thing to to be able to have. It's uh, terrific. I mean, we happen to be fortunate in uh, being able to be located a ten minute walk from Lincoln Center and a ten minute subway ride from the theater district and. And uh, we're right in the middle of everything that kind of feeds what we do. So, so yes, and that's been true for almost all of my life since we... I was born out west in Nebraska, but we moved east during the war when I was still a kid. And uh, I've been basically an Upper West Sider ever since then. And through your, your experiences there, you, uh, you, you've, you sat down and, and you wrote a book. Uh, the book I refer to again is is Opera as Opera: The State of the Art, and um, a lot of people are are uh, singing high praise of it. 
what what is the gist of the book? I know you, you struggle with some of the predicaments of opera in it. Mm -hmm. Well, they're very simple to describe. They're very complicated to trace uh, and to uh, you know amplify on. But really, the predicament consists of two things. One is that for a hundred years now, almost exactly, we're just marking the uh, 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. Uh, for that century, very, very little has been added to what we might call the canon uh, or the repertory of opera that has really stuck in a level that uh, can uh, be compared with the great works of the 19th and 18th centuries. Um, so there hasn't been sufficient creative renewal. Somehow the creators of the art haven't found a way to bring out of the modern era um, um, works that uh, that can really fill in that repertory. The second is that, as you might expect, if, a, if an art form goes creatively sort of senescent, um, the interpreters kind of lose touch with the sources of their own work, the things that would feed interpreting the works that they're doing become increasingly remote. So that's been happening for two or three generations. And um, so, uh, and that includes most of all, I would say, a decline in the level of big-time operatic singing, which is sort of the crux of the art form. So you have a kind of a double whammy where uh, creatively things haven't been renewed enough and interpretively, things have kind of fallen fallen away from the bone. So uh, that's the essential predicament to find an art form that's um, that seems kind of lost in the contemporary scene and has been marginalized. Um, and economically, things are not good for it. Uh, that's the predicament. Um, uh, the elaborations on all of that are kind of what the book is about. So. Uh, I won't start to try to fill all that in. Well, it's it's interesting to me. Just a few weeks ago, I had a conversation with uh, Delfio Marsalis from the Marsalis family out of New Orleans, and he was saying similar things about jazz. And he was talking about his brother Winton at the, the Lincoln Jazz Center, right? Trying to you know uh, nurture and and uh, open up the the uh, this community. Uh, to jazz music, but it it seems it it needs more to be in, to go into the grassroots uh, element of, of well, us. yes, if you you're right. If you lose, I mean, I don't know a lot about jazz, but but if you lose, get kind of get pulled away from what the social and cultural sources of the thing are, then you have people just sort of trying to pick it up or imitate it in some way. I mean, I don't know if that's exactly what's happened in jazz. But I remember seeing a video with Wynton Marsalis um, giving instruction to young people, uh, very good instruction and very kind. And uh, there, was, there was a young, young uh, African-American kid playing a Haydn concerto and playing it, as far as the notes go, pretty well. And Marcella said to him, look, you ever heard a Haydn concerto before? You ever heard any classical music? And the kid said, no. <laughs> and and uh, went and said, well, look, you're a good player, but, but that's what you have to, you have to get culturally immersed in. I mean, he didn't use exactly these words, but that was the gist of it. 
And uh, I'm sure that's true in a form. I mean, jazz is an improvisational form. Primarily, it doesn't even have written scores, which we do in classical music. You can always refer to what it says there on the page. But with jazz, it's it's all a feel of um, uh, either you're kind of inside that idea and that kind of sound or you're not. So, yeah, I can well appreciate that that probably is true in I'm, that form as well. I'm, yeah, as well. I'm wondering if there's a, a parallel to, to some extent with uh, what you're describing as the predicament in opera, you know, you you have certain uh, individuals that love it and that'll support it, but that pool gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, artists as well as just patrons, uh, unless you get it out to the larger uh, community, and how you know how are you going to do that? And is there even an interest? Are there too many other distractions and other forms of music, whether you call them high art or not, is another question that get people's attention and support. That's correct, and and not only music. I mean, you get into this whole little field of study in economics where they talk about substitutes, uh, and I, I talk about this briefly in the book as well. Um, and as you mentioned here, I am on the Upper West Side. I've got a thousand things I can choose from in terms of entertainment before we even get to all the free entertainment that's uh, that's available to me at home. And uh, and that takes all kinds of forms, and I have more than one interest in my life. So although, you know, the local movie for 12 or 15 bucks or something may not seem like it should be a substitute for tonight's opera performance, in terms of people choosing what to do, how to, how to spend their time and their money, all those things are potentially substitutes for one another. And unless you have a really powerful, passionate connection to something, uh, opera, for instance, uh, you're not going to make that choice exclusively so much. I think that's happened a lot with the developments uh, in technology and availabilities of social media and all of that. And yeah, exactly. Well put. And, you know, it makes me also wonder about the whole idea of, of having some sort of superstar, if you will, uh, in, in opera. You know, you, you, way back when you'd have the, the three tenors or you'd have Enrico Caruso or, uh, yeah. or, or a composer of, of, uh, uh, a rock star status at some at some mm-hmm. point. Now, do we? I, I think you were you were sort of uh, uh, alluding to the fact that that is not happening anymore. Not much. I mean, you do have a few people. For example, Anna Netrebko, Jonas Kaufmann. There, there are a few people who, through a combination of personality and voice, you know, performing talent, uh, still can sell tickets, kind of on their own. Uh, but even they are not the the quite the big superstar voices and temperaments of yesteryear, and it goes beyond that. I mean, we used to be able to call on a large number of people with with big, beautiful voices. You could cast the heavy works of the repertory, which are in many cases the real masterpieces. You could cast them. Um, there might be casts enough available uh, to do performances at several of the world's opera houses in the same season. Now you have trouble pulling together a cast for even just one, you know, one production of such an opera, and it's still not going to be the same as it would have been 50 years ago. 
So it's a general decline of availability of of great singers. There are lots of very competent ones and lots of very good musicians, very well trained, going through our uh, system of academic training and an associate and apprentice artists and so on, produces a large number of reliable, musicianly, um, obedient <laughs> performers, but it doesn't seem to produce the great individual uh, unique stars. That's true. You know, we had on the show, uh, oh, last summer, I think it was, uh, librettist Richard Wargo. And, mm-hmm. and uh, he, you know, he's sort of a contemporary, uh, com- well, he is a contemporary composer. He's working on new pieces, and they are put on across the country. Uh, and, you know, he... He, we didn't get into the same uh, line of, of discussion about opera, right. but he seemed very excited uh, about what he was doing, at least, you know. Uh, and I'm wondering if there are many, because uh, I don't know, I'm a novice in, in this world, uh, of, of that sort. You know, are there a lot of librettists out there trying to make it big, trying to come up with something that they can then take to an, uh, a regional orchestra uh, and, and have it uh, perform, their piece performed? Yes. Yes, there's a lot of activity. Uh, uh, one friend of mine is Gene Shear, who's uh, another librettist who's written librettos for a whole bunch of uh, of operas that have been successful in the way we define success these days. That is, they get done. Um, uh, then most of them go away, but at least they get done. And uh, there is a great deal of activity, and there's and there's a fair amount of talent. It's not a question of there not being talent or there not being skill, but most of the they don't seem to know what to write about. They don't seem to have a way that they have confidence in of writing about it. Uh, a lot of the work that's being done, and some of it is interesting, is in chamber opera form, small pieces one-act pieces or whatever that are suitable for colleges, they're suitable for regional situations. Um, There's almost, there's so little being done in the way of really challenging the big form um, that we usually think of as grand opera. And there is a lot of, uh, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of activity, so there's some talented people, and some of the pieces they do are interesting. Um... We had this piece called Written on Skin a couple of years ago that is a very smart, well-written, interesting, challenging piece. Got done all around the circuit, all over the world, and it probably will hang around for some revivals. But it's a connoisseur's opera. It's a piece that you have to have a specific intellectual and cultural, you have to be on a wavelength of a rather rarefied sort to really appreciate it and be into it. So it's never going to be a repertory opera. And uh, the status that the form used to have as a really popular art form that it had in the European countries, and to some extent over here, that just kind of isn't, isn't being fed into very much. And um, I talk in the book about, a, about this concept of a meta-narrative, um, that is a story that gets told over and over and over again. So it's really redundant. But if the composers are geniuses, uh, it appears in so many forms and sounds so different from one to another that it doesn't seem redundant. 
And yet it is the same story being told repeatedly. And you can trace that through in, in 19th century opera, certainly in the works of Verdi and Wagner and Strauss and Puccini and, and all of those people. Um, a single storyline, basically, with a single um, character confirmation. Many variations, sometimes where it seems kind of hidden or does a reverse in order to get there. But, um, but they had such a story that was very important to the artists to tell and moving and exciting to audiences to hear. And I think that's what generated a lot of the great work. Rather than a specific musical style, musical styles in opera don't come out of nowhere. They come out of the story that's being told, the drama that's being enacted. And it seems to me that we don't have one. Uh, ever since the First World War. Um, and one can talk endlessly about all of the changes and the social and cultural upheavals. But um, to me, that's the big generating force that they had. And in previous centuries, there were sort of, I think, less powerful, but nonetheless cohesive stories that were being told, a lot of them taken from mythology, from the old... Uh, Greek and Roman legends uh, that sustained the the art form early on. But it was an agreed-upon thing, kind of, that that was important to listeners and to the artists themselves. And it's seen now people are scrambling. They're looking around for something. What's important <laughs> to sing about? And it turns out usually to be some topical thing which may be important, may be politically and socially important, but how to, how to generate the personal visceral interest in that uh, that makes an opera seems to be a puzzle that people are not solving. Wonderfully put, wonderfully put. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking with Conrad L. Osborne on the program today. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. And, uh, I, I, you know, there are so many things going on when I look out my window that I think uh, should be able to be uh, uh, communicated via any form, including opera, uh, that would resonate to, to a, a, pay, mm -hmm. a, a listener. I... So that makes me wonder, I mean, why is it just, and I don't want, again, I, I don't know uh, who's out there. I'm a novice, but uh, is it is it is opera not, not attracting uh, individuals who have that level of talent, like like uh, some of the, the, the people you mentioned, Verdi and Wagner, Strauss, Puccini? Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's what it seems to come down to. Um uh, yes, <laughs> but uh, but it can't be just the talent has disappeared. I mean, a lot of these people are very smart. They are highly educated musically. Um, there's plenty of skill available, but they don't seem to be able to hook up. You know, the, in terms of the meta-narrative that I was talking about, the kind of overarching story, it had to do with a protagonist couple man and a woman who are in love with one another, they're outsiders. The guy has been deprived of the position that he 
feels or the or that he legitimately was entitled to and the woman often originally speaking of troubadours and raconteurs is all really goes back to uh, medieval sources a high-born lady uh, to whom the man tries to get connected so anyway they wind up as a as an outsider protagonist couple struggling against the society and its rules and Mostly that doesn't end well. It ends tragically. Uh, once in a while it ends happily in, a, in the comedies, uh, but they're infrequent compared to the tragedies. I'm talking about 19th century opera now. Uh, and it seems to me, uh, I mean, we kind of run away from that whole idea, and of course its original setting is no longer certainly the same. But when I think of people, individuals, trying to find agency, and trying to connect with each other and to survive as human beings in this increasingly technological world and the dehumanizing or transhumanizing things that are going on, that seems to me to be still basically still the same very powerful story that would have to be told in a somewhat different way. But Composers and librettists then would have to get inside those people and inside the um, the threat of the surrounding um, the society that they're living in. And somehow they don't find their way to that. Um, uh, there are a lot of things that could be held responsible, developments in, in what we call modernism or postmodernism, uh, the academization of all of this, um, Almost all composers, all librettists are people who have been academically instructed. And I'm not against that. <laughs> but um, it wasn't true, basically, of a lot of the people who we regard as the great geniuses of, of uh, opera. Uh, and I think this applies to other art forms as well. One could go on here. I can only say uh, all of this is in the book in one way or another at great length. So, Buy the book. Um, <laughs> Definitely. Uh, yes, exactly. Please, yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, that is uh, titled Opera as Opera, The State of the Art by Conrad L. Osborne. And I know you, you just alluded to this. Uh, well, you mentioned it, postmodern philosophy. Yeah, in in some regard, you believe that that has had a negative influence on on where opera is today, because it's uh, yes. it's opposed yes. to the whole idea of a meta narrative. That's part of it. I mean, it's opposed to all narrative. All narrative. Uh, and it it well. Yes, There's no objective universal truths or. Correct, and not only that, there isn't really a story. There are disconnected events. And they regard that that perception as being a reality, as being a virtue. And I understand that. Um, that does describe, in certain ways, our reality. But you can't make a drama out of that. It's, uh, they actually call it post-dramatic. Um, and I think that, you know, you've had a very, this is, I'm talking in very rough, broad generalities now, but um, in the old days, uh, content was kind of the king, uh, the, which in opera means the plot and the characters. Uh, how those things were told and how the characters were disposed in relationship to one another in conflict, which is what produces drama, um, was, the, was the essence of the form. 
the materials that you worked with, the structures, the way it got done, they had to conform to that. They had to find a way of powerfully conveying that content. Then, in modernism, you had to shift to the materials themselves, that the materials or the structure was the content. You find that articulated a lot in talk about the visual arts or in architecture or whatever, but it came to be a way of looking at all art, uh, including the performing arts. And then in postmodernism, you get this idea that even the materials are not the point. Uh, only idea is the point. And disconnection, and that's where you get into all of the work in semiotics and post-structuralism and deconstruction and so on. And I don't want to pose as, a, as an expert in those fields. I've just learned enough about it to see what's going on in relation to the art that I love. So those things have had a profoundly destabilizing effect. And I'm not even arguing against the validity of the ideas, but as they apply to opera, they're unusable. They, uh, they're inimical to the creation of opera in anything like the form that we have learned about it. Um, Anything. I guess that's what I had to say about that. Yeah, any, yeah, I, I hear you. It, it makes total sense. It it seems to take the the passion, the verve out of it. Uh, if you don't, and and the commonality that is is you know inherent in the human experience that people will will be touched by, will be inspired by, will be compelled by. That's right. That that you can find a way of writing music primarily through the singing voice. I mean, that's the that's the principal connector. Um, it's, uh, if you reduce opera to the thing it can't do without, it's a person committing a theatrical action through voice, through song. And it includes physical behavior, of course. But that element is the one thing that is essential. Everything else, as important as it may be, um, has to be grouped around that, has to be in support of that. And unless you can find something you feel powerfully enough about to want to write things that connect with people viscerally, it's not primarily an intellectual art form. And it started to become that through these, idea, through these ideas about idea and through the high education and, and so forth of everybody involved in it. You're supposed to decode it, sort of. And in what's happened in modern production, what we call conceptual production, or they use the German term Regie Theater, which just means director's theater, um, it's a shift from receiving things viscerally that way, mostly through the ear and secondarily through the eye, to receiving things mostly through the eye and with the necessity of analyzing or decoding it in order to understand it. And a lot of these productions actually have a message embedded in them that contradicts the messages that the composer and librettist started out to convey because social attitudes have changed so much. So politically, it's kind of turned around. And instead of creating stuff of our own, they use the old stuff, but try to stand it on its head. And uh, I use the term parasitical and parasitical at once. Uh, 
<laughs> because we, here we have all this material, these great works, canon of works, uh, that are recognized as masterworks. And they're still being done, but they're being turned around in production words and then relatively feebly conveyed uh, vocally. So they don't have they don't have their impact. They may have another impact, but that's one that actually goes to to undermine them. So how are you going to have an art form that way? Um, I guess that's what it kind of comes down to. Yes, again, well put. It's such a pleasure talking with you, Mr. Osborne. Well, it's a, uh, it's this has been terrific uh, speaking with you, and uh, so glad to learn more about your show and uh, um, see this and. Uh, uh, Spend time well spent. Thank you. And uh, do you have uh, any any closing thoughts about the future of opera <laughs> succinctly? <laughs> Very murky. Um, I mean, in view of all that we've just said, uh, we're kind of foundering around. Uh, the only thing that I would say, I guess, is that I think that opera and the live performing arts in general have the mission to stand over against um, a lot of these developments that we've been speaking about. They, they should be the ones holding out against it, not just as holding on to old stuff, but defending the concept of humanity and of the individual as having agency, standing up for that in a world that I think is increasingly unfriendly toward that. I think the live performing arts are the ideal instrument for for um, being on that mission. And unless they find a way of doing that, and I certainly think this is true about opera, I don't think it'll find a way in the 21st century, and it won't deserve to. Conrad L. Osborne, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I wish you and yours a wonderful holiday season, and hopefully we have another opportunity to talk on the program. Thank you so much, Lawrence, and the same to you, and uh, it's been a terrific, uh, terrific pleasure. Ciao. Okay, bye-bye.
Coal Town Cinema. One of the most famous movies filmed in our depressed former Coal Town, or rather, famous to the aging locals, was that championship season. The film was directed by Jason Miller and based on his play, which takes place in our valley. It starred a lethargic Robert Mitchum, Bruce Jern, Martin Sheen, Stacy Keach, and Paul Servino. It was filmed in our park, our diners, our mall, and Miller's own neighborhood on the west side of our town. Unfortunately, most of the scenes shot in our area were cut. The film never transcended its one-set theatrical origins, and it didn't fare well with critics or audiences. One of the most infamous was The Trouble with Callie, directed by Paul Savino, written by his daughter, and featuring his children, including his Oscar-winning daughter, Mira. It was a problem-plagued vanity project from the get-go. Some of the production budget came from county coffers, and a former county commissioner, since jailed for other reasons, is listed as executive producer. His credit on screen ignited jeers and catcalls when the film was shown to a local audience. The movie, which involves a ballerina and a cop and cross-dressing and much more, all of it confusing, was a camp fest and a disaster. The local screening was a hoot. The film was never released, and Servino, once an adopted favorite son, is now a punchline. Our area was the location for one superb film, however, a classic from 1970 that didn't receive much nationwide notice when it was released, but has been rediscovered and revered since then. Wanda, written and directed by Barbara Loden, is about a troubled young woman who abandons her f husband and family and becomes entangled with an equally troubled and masochistic bank robber, Mr. Dennis. Even by the standards of late 60s, early 70s cinema, Wanda is bleak. Bleak in the beginning, the first shot is of a lone figure striding through a coal dump. Bleak throughout Wanda's disturbing adventures, and bleak at the end, a freeze frame of her beautiful, wan, and worried face. Neither Wanda nor Mr. Dennis are good talkers. At one point he asks her what she wants, out of life, I suppose, and she says, nothing. He says, if you don't want anything, you're nothing. You might as well be dead. You're not even a citizen of the United States. I guess I'm dead then, Wanda calmly replies without emotion. Despite the sadness of its story, watching Wanda is not a depressing experience. It's too good of a movie. Lone's own story is also a sad one. She directed only one movie and died of cancer at 48. She began her career as a pinup girl and model and was primarily known as an actress. She played Laura in an excellent 1966 television production of The Glass Menagerie and won a Tony Award for portraying a character based on Marilyn Monroe in Arthur Miller's After the Fall. She was married to, sometimes encouraged by, 
and sometimes suppressed by the great stage and film director Eli Kazan, who made a streetcar named Desire on the waterfront, east of Eden, and a face in the crowd. Loden is now an icon of early feminist cinema and a figure of conjecture. What might her writing and directing career have been if she had lived and been given the chance to make more movies? Of course, considering the history of cinema, the odds would have been against a female director, as the career of Elaine May, for one, will attest. Perhaps we should simply be grateful for Wanda, especially the denizens of our depressed former coal country. How else could an image of a bus from Carbondale have made it to the screen? And look, Wanda and Mr. Dennis are driving on I-81 while Mr. Dennis tosses Wanda's old clothes out the car window. Women should only wear skirts, Mr. Dennis tells her. And as they make their way to a fatal, ill-planned, and botched bank robbery, we can see our town, circa 1970, preserved for all time. There's the Globe Store, where almost all of us worked at one time or another, and where all of us shopped. There's the Cathedral, and Penn Furniture, and Saul's Sandwich Shop, and Shooky's Delicatessen. There's the American Auto Building, a carport, car parts store that became a bar where Jason Miller suffered a fatal heart attack. There's a billboard for Tasty Cake Cupcakes. And there's the Third National Bank. And behind a police cordon, we see Wanda among the gawking townspeople, extras immortalized on film with their bouffant hairdos and cat's eye glasses, and no doubt long gone to their heavenly reward. In Walker Percy's novel, The Moviegoer, Binks Bowling, the alienated narrator, reflects on how movies certify reality. Nowadays, when a person lives somewhere in a neighborhood, the place is not certified for him. More than likely, he will live there sadly, and the emptiness which is inside him will expand until it evacuates the entire neighborhood. But if he sees a movie which shows his very neighborhood, it becomes possible for him to live, for a time at least, as a person who is somewhere and not anywhere. With Wanda, Barbara Loden certified our depressed former coal town.
A note. The story goes that my grandfather, Lorenzo, enjoyed a performance by Enrico Caruso in Napoli, where he hit a note so powerful that it shattered stained glass windows in the performance hall. And there you have it, episode 294 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, 
author and opera historian, critic, and lover, Conrad L. Osborne. I'd like to thank our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Rhett Miller, Amelita Galicurci, Maria Callas, Granddaddy, Enrico Caruso, Brentford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. I also would like to thank all of the listeners across this great blue ball of ours, in particular those in Bellows Falls, Vermont, at W-O-L Radio, Black Sheep Radio, at that. Also in Burlington, Vermont, WBTV Radio. In Mount Vernon, in the great state of Washington, at KSVR. In Harpswell, Maine, at Harpswell Radio. And of course, in Scranton and Mount Cobb, Pennsylvania, at WFTE. And in Brooklyn, New York, at Radio Free Brooklyn. Until next week, let's give it a go and enjoy this one. And have fun with your family and friends during this holiday season. <laughs>